0: this is audible
1: audible dot com presents the senate judiciary committee's hearings on the nomination of judge john roberts to be chief justice of the supreme court we invite you to visit audible dot com for the best downloadable audiobooks as well as subscriptions and podcasts of top audio programs including the new york times this american life the wall street journal and the new yorker
2: thank you mr chairman um, Judge Roberts, let me start on a couple of items that I I think will be uh, relatively non-controversial. Believe it or not, and maybe people watching this proceeding uh, won't believe it, but members of this committee and members of the Senate actually do try to work together on a bipartisan basis to pass legislation that uh, we believe is in the best interest of the people who sent us here and the American people. One uh, area of bipartisan agreement Uh, I just want to reiterate uh, Senator Feingold's comments about cameras in the courtroom. Uh, I uh, am a strong supporter of uh, cameras in the courtroom, as long as they're unobtrusive and they don't uh, disturb the proceedings or prejudice the rights of uh, the litigants. But I do agree with him that uh, it's important, and Senator Grassley, I know, is a uh, – each Congress introduces legislation on this. Uh, I do believe it's important to let the people of the United States uh, know what happens in courtrooms uh, I think they could learn a lot about uh, their government I think that uh, would make them um, uh, make them more sensitive to the nature of the decisions that are made there and give them confidence that there are dedicated public servants who serve in the judiciary who are doing the job of a judge day in and day out in a in a dignified and distinguished and professional uh, manner. Along the lines of what Senator Kyle uh, mentioned earlier, there's another area that I think is uh, non-controversial and bipartisan, but it's something, frankly, that we need your help with if you're confirmed as Chief Justice. And that has to do with the, uh, the bar to the courtroom presented by excessive costs and time delays inherent in uh, modern litigation, um, these uh, these impediments to uh, access to justice are just as effective as if you had an armed guard at the door of the courthouse or had somebody put a padlock on the front door, because frankly not uh, many people can afford access uh, to the courthouse, to justice, to uh, jury trials, because the costs are just so prohibitive. And I remember that uh, Chief Justice Berger, when he was chief, took on the cause of alternative dispute resolution and this cause of excessive delay and cost as being an impediment to access to justice uh, with uh, quite a bit of success. And, um, but it's a cause that uh, needs a lot of work. It needs the attention of the Chief Justice of the United States and the prestige uh, that you would bring to that. Uh, because, frankly, it uh, it worries me a great deal. Um, just like it concerns me that we, we see with the uh, the length of time of modern jury trials, um, of course, many people think about jury trials. They think about the O.J. Simpson trial where the jury was impaneled for months on end and wonder how in the world can a jury still represent the conscience of the community and, and be a cross-section of the community when so many people are precluded from serving because of the economic or other hardship associated with that. So these are hard issues that uh, I hope you will uh, take a look at and work with the Judiciary Committee and, and the Congress, if necessary, or where necessary, I should say, uh, to try to address because I think uh, uh, they would be a great service uh, to the American people. Let me, uh, as a good lawyer, you know the danger of analogies. Uh, and yesterday we started talking about judges as umpires, and uh, you were uh, quite eloquent in uh, saying that uh, you wanted to be an umpire, you didn't want to bat or pitch, and I think it was a very succinct and appropriate way to describe exactly the role that you thought judges ought to uh, play, not as partisans, uh, but as impartial and disinterested in the outcome, but nevertheless, interested in providing a access to uh, to, to justice. Well, I happened to be looking at my computer last night, and uh, one of the blogs, uh, and it's always frightening to, to see, uh, to put your name in a search and look at the ways it's mentioned. I, I, I suggest you don't do that if you haven't <laughs> until this hearing is over, uh, because this hearing is the subject of a lot of uh, activity and interest in the blogosphere. But, um, One of these blogs said that your comparison of a judge to a baseball umpire reminded him of an old story about three different modes of judicial reasoning built on the same analogy. First was the umpire that says, some are balls and some are strikes, and I call them the way they are. The second umpire says, some are balls and some are strikes, and I call them the way I see them. The third said, some are balls and some are strikes, but they ain't nothing till I call them. <laughs> well, I don't know whether it's a fair question to ask you which of those three uh, types of umpires represents the uh, your preferred mode of judicial reasoning. Um, but uh, I wonder if you have any comment about that.
3: Uh, well, uh, I think I agree with your point about the danger of analogies in some situations. Um uh, it's not the last uh, because uh, they are balls and strikes uh, regardless. And if I call them one and they're the other, that doesn't change what they are. It just means that I got it wrong. Um, I guess I like the one in the middle uh, because I do think there are right answers. Um, I know that it's fashionable in some places to suggest that uh, there are no right answers and that the judges are motivated by a constellation of different considerations and. Uh, Because of that, it should affect how we approach certain other issues. Uh, That's not the view of the law that I subscribe to. I think uh, when you folks legislate, you do have something in mind in particular, and you put it into words, and you expect judges not to put in their own preferences, not to substitute their judgment for you, but to implement your view of what you were accomplishing in that statute. Uh, I think when the framers framed the Constitution, it was the same thing. Uh, and the judges are not to put in their own personal views about what the Constitution should say, but they're supposed to interpret it and uh, apply the meaning that is in the Constitution. And I think there is meaning there, and I think there is meaning in your legislation. And the job of a good judge is to do as good a good a job as possible uh, to get the right answer. Um, uh, again, I know there are those theorists who think that's uh, futile or because it's hard, and. Particular cases, we should just throw up our hands and not try uh, in any case, and I don't subscribe to that. Um, I believe that there are right answers, and judges, if they work hard enough, are likely to come up with that.
2: Well, as a good lawyer, you also know the danger of an analogy is that uh, people will take it and run away with it, uh, perhaps use it against you. And um, I heard today that yesterday we were talking about uh, baseball, but today uh, we're talking about dodgeball. Some have suggested that you have been less than forthcoming uh, about your answers to the questions and I just couldn't disagree with that more and I want to I go over this uh, just a minute because I think it bears some repetition. First of all, uh, you were confirmed by the United States Senate by unanimous consent just a little over two years ago to the District of Columbia uh, Court of Appeals, what some have called the second most important or powerful court in the nation. Uh, so you've been before the committee before. You've been thoroughly investigated, examined, and scrutinized, uh, perhaps more than uh, anyone else in, in history. The reason I say that is because since your nomination first to as Associate Justice and now as Chief Justice, uh, there have been more than 100,000 documents produced about your background and record, uh, some in the uh, government Uh, sector, some in the private sector. And, uh, of course, we've heard today how perhaps uh, a line or a word or a choice of phrase can be used, uh, perhaps out of context, to try to create an impression uh, that may or may not be borne out by looking at the entire context of your record or even the document. But um, I do believe you have been forthcoming. I know the uh, Before we had the last uh, two rounds of questions, you'd answered 35 questions on civil rights, 10 on following precedents. You answered 40 questions about the role of a judge, uh, 25 on abortion and privacy rights, and 11 on presidential powers. So uh, I would just uh, disagree with the characterization that uh, someone might make. Uh, I don't think it's fair or accurate that you've been anything um less than completely forthcoming and that we frankly know an awful lot about you and uh, that's not been a bad thing uh, i think in, from my point of view the more that we have learned about you the more confidence uh, many of us have in the uh, judgment of the president in uh, your selection but of course you're not uh, you're not there yet uh, we still have a lot of questions to ask before voting I want to uh, also talk to you a little bit about uh, one area of questioning. Uh, I, I believe it was Senator Biden who was asking you about Judge Justice Ginsburg and the fact that she answered some questions but declined others. And we've talked about the Ginsburg standard. I think Senator Schumer referred to that as well. And what I understand that to mean, what I mean by that when I say it, is that she has recognized that there is an, a line that a nominee cannot step over in terms of prejudging cases or issues that may come back before the Supreme Court. And that's the line I understand you to have drawn. But uh, Justice Ginsburg, as uh, I believe Senator Graham pointed out, had an extensive paper trail and record, and she did feel at some liberty to talk about issues where she, her views were already public or where she had already written. Is that the distinction, uh, or could you explain your understanding of the distinction she was making or how she handled it, perhaps in a way that's different from
3: the way you are handling questions? Um, My understanding, based on reading the transcripts, not just of Justice Ginsburg's hearing, but of the hearings for every one of the justices on the court, um, is that that was her approach, that she would generally decline to comment on whether she viewed particular cases as correctly decided or not. Um, she at one point said that that was the court's precedent. She had no agenda to reconsider it, and that was all she was going to say. And in areas where she had written, she thought it was appropriate to discuss more fully because it was an area that she would already publicly commented on. And I understand that to be the distinction uh, as to why she commented in particular areas, but not others.
2: To your knowledge, is the, uh, the line that you have attempted to walk in these proceedings about being as forthcoming as you can, but uh, recognizing that uh, you have a responsibility not to jeopardize imparti- your impartiality, either the perception of the reality, uh, or the impartiality and independence of the judiciary. Has uh, that been the line that you've attempted to walk, and as you understand, previous
3: nominees have attempted to walk? it is senator with with uh, an exception. And the exception is that I've tried to be uh, to share more of my views with respect to particular cases. Uh, I know other nominees have declined, for example, to comment on even a case like Marbury versus Madison because they thought as a theoretical matter, it could come before the court. Um, I tend to take a more practical and pragmatic approach to things rather than a theoretical or ideological approach. I think as a practical matter, an issue about Marbury versus Madison is not likely to come before the court, same with Brown versus Board of Education, so I've gone farther than many nominees and have been willing to talk about uh, my views on those particular cases. Um, But I do think when it gets into an area where the correctness or incorrectness or my agreement or disagreement with a particular precedent is in an area that is likely to come before the court or could well come before the court, I do have to draw the line there. And it's not in, out of any interest to dodge questions or anything, as my views on the cases that I think are not likely to come before the court, I'm perfectly willing to discuss. It's based on the concern that the independence and integrity of the Supreme Court depends upon justices who go there and will decide the issues there with an open mind based on the judicial decisional process, not based on prior commitments they made during the nomination hearing. All of the justices have adhered to that approach for that reason. And if I'm to join their number, I need to be able to look them in the eye in the conference room and say, I kept the same faith with the independence and integrity of this court.
2: Well, I think it also may reflect the fact that you seem to be quite comfortable uh, responding to uh, questions from the uh, from the committee. Uh, you've had a lot of experience uh, responding to questions from the bench and having to distinguish cases, answer hypothetical questions and the like. And and I think we uh, have gained an appreciation, a greater appreciation, for your, uh, for the skills that you've acquired and your, uh, your ability. But uh, I understand the, the the line you're walking, and I think it's a really a constitutional standard uh, that you're trying to observe, and I uh, applaud you for it. A couple other areas I want to ask you about. Um, but first, let me ask you this. Judges are not in the business of picking winners and losers before they've actually heard the case, uh, of course. I mean, that's fundamental to our concept of justice, that the uh, judge be open-minded, uh, be willing to listen to the facts and arguments of counsel, and then, then make it a, a decision. Um, and the process that you use is is by applying neutral principles. In other words, when you make a decision based on the Commerce Clause or even based on stare decisis, does that really have anything to do with the ultimate result? In other words, do you start with the results you want to reach first and then go back and try to rationalize it or justify it by the way you read the Commerce Clause of the Constitution or apply the the legal doctrine of stare decisis?
3: Uh, no, Senator. It's saying uh, a judge is result-oriented, that type of judge, that's about the worst thing you can say about a judge. Those are um, almost fight words. Uh, it's, 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 it's about the worst thing you can say because what you're saying is you don't apply the law to tell you what the result should be. You don't go through the judicial decisional process. You don't look... To the principles that are established in the Constitution or the law. You look to what you think the result should be and then you go back and try to rationalize it. And uh, that's not the way the system is supposed to work. Well,
2: I know that we've heard uh, uh, today about uh, a number of terms from stare decisis to uh, pro hoc vice to uh, uh, pro forma to. uh, the only one we haven't heard is res ipsa loquitur, and uh, and a number of other Latin phrases that we learned in law school. Um, but let me ask you about stare decisis. Um, I've heard a fascinating discussion back and forth about precedent and how you would deal with a case. Let's for say example Roe versus Wade, and some have suggested law professors and maybe others that uh, somehow that's a super. Precedent, or in the words of our inimitable chairman, a super duper precedent. Um, I think we're introducing new words to the legal lexicon as we as this hearing goes on. But in all seriousness, if uh, well, let me ask you this: Is Stare Decisis a uh, uh, insurmountable obstacle to revisiting a decision based on an interpretation of the Constitution?
3: What the Supreme Court has said um, I in the Casey decision for example uh, is that it is not uh, in an inexorable command in other words um, it's not uh, an absolute rule and that's why they have these various cases that explain the circumstances under which you should revisit a prior precedent that you think may be flawed and when you when you shouldn't and I can obviously Excuse me. I didn't mean to interrupt you. I was just going to say there are significant cases in the court's history, in the nation's history, where the court has revisited precedents, like Brown versus Board of Education, like the cases that overruled the decisions of the Lochner era.
2: Well, and you make you uh, started to make the point I was going to try to make, and that next, and that is, uh, stare decisis does not did not prevent the United States Supreme Court from revisiting. Uh, Plessy versus Ferguson, which established the separate but equal doctrine, um, or otherwise, Brown versus Board of Education would never be the law of the land. Uh, um, stare decisis uh, did not prevent the uh, Supreme Court from overruling Bowers versus Hardwick and uh, Lawrence versus Texas, or Stanford versus Kentucky uh, in this recent uh, term of the court, where they said the death penalty for seventeen year-old murderers was unconstitutional in Roper versus Simmons. So, would you agree with me, uh, Judge, that this is a neutral principle? In other words, it's not a result-oriented principle, uh, if there is such a thing. Um, and uh, you have pledged to, uh, to apply neutral principles, not result-oriented uh, processes in arriving at your decisions
3: uh, if confirmed. Right. It is a neutral principle. Uh, The factors that the court looks at in deciding whether to overrule prior precedent or not do not depend upon what the decision is or what area it's in, other than some areas, things we've talked about. For example, a statutory decision is much less likely to be overturned than a constitutional decision uh, just because Congress can address those issues themselves. But the principles of stare decisis are neutral uh, and should be applied in a neutral way. Uh, to cases without regard to the substance of the decisions being considered.
2: And when you said this morning in response to questions about Roe v. Wade that it is settled as a precedent of the court entitled to respect under principles of stare decisis, uh, you were uh, saying that uh, just that. In other words, that it is a precedent of the court. There has to be a, a, a strong case made uh, for why that issue should be revisited, if at all. But you weren't making any commitment one way or another about the outcome of any uh, challenge brought under that or any other uh,
3: legal doctrine, were you? No, Senator. I, and I've tried as uh, scrupulously as possible today to avoid making any commitments uh, about cases that might come before the court.
2: I, I agree you have. And I just wanted to make sure that we were all on the same page uh, in that understanding. Uh, Senator Schumer asked about the Commerce Clause, and I've just been uh, I've been fascinated uh, by this uh, uh, debate about the the Commerce Clause. Of course, you know when this nation got started. Uh, of course, the uh, the first uh, first we had the Articles of Confederation, where the states were supreme and they could not the nation couldn't function unless all states agreed, and so the federal government was essentially impotent which led, of course, to the uh, uh, Constitutional Convention and a, f- a federal uh, form of government where states and the federal government shared powers. And um, now it's interesting to hear, of course, we've seen a, a growth of uh, national uh, power uh, over the years through the, a series of court, here, uh, court decisions. And um, Congress, frankly, has pushed the envelope. Um, and tried to argue that uh, that Congress has virtually unlimited power to legislate um, and can crowd out state governments uh, completely out of any field they it wants to. But is it true that there are um, specific uh, jurisdictional bases upon which the Congress can legislate? In other words. Uh, uh, under um, under the Fourteenth Amendment, uh, Section Five, under the Commerce Clause. In other words, the Constitution of the United States was supposed to be a Constitution of delegated or enumerated powers, and the commerce, the interstate commerce, being one of those enumerated powers. Of course, there are other provisions like the uh, uh, Necessary and Proper Clause. There've been a lot of decisions over the years about whether it's only powers expressed or implied and, and the like. But isn't it true that the Supreme Court in the last decade uh, has finally said in Lopez and Morrison, for example, that there, that federal uh, power is not unlimited, that there is some limit and the, and the, the fight is really over where those limits are? Would you agree with that? Uh,
3: Yes, Senator, and I do think that a proper consideration of Lopez and Morrison uh, has to take into account the more recent Supreme Court decision in Reich, um, where the court made the point that, yes, we have these decisions in Lopez and Morrison, uh, but... They are part of a 218 year history of decisions applying the Commerce Clause, um, and they need to be taken into account uh, in the broad scope. It's an appreciation, again, the first one in 60, 65, 70 years uh, that recognized a limitation on what was within the Commerce Power, but they're not sort of, uh, they didn't junk all the cases that came before. They didn't set a new standard. Um, that's what the court said in Raich. It said, yes, we have those two cases. Uh, don't overread them. Uh, put them in the context and you know, move on from there. And as the court in Raich concluded, they upheld the exercise of Congress's well, authorities there.
2: Well, I don't think it would come as any surprise to uh, anyone who's listening uh, to these proceedings outside of the Beltway um, that uh, our government was premised in part on the notion that all wisdom does not emanate from Washington, D.C., and that the the states do have uh, areas of competence and authority uh, to the exclusion of the federal government. And uh, one of the great things, I think, about this hearing uh, is that a lot of people, I think, are learning and hearing about concepts that uh, perhaps they never heard about before, but really, these are debates that have occurred since the beginning uh, of America itself and since the formation of our government. So I hope that uh, this is, uh, is an educational experience or maybe even a refresher course for many of us about some basic principles upon which our government was founded. Um, and of course, the most important uh, principle uh, from my standpoint is that, that articulated in the Declaration of Independence itself that says that our laws are based on consent of the governed, which means that most of the debates we have about the laws and the policies that will govern us and affect our families and our jobs are going to be decided in the political realm, where people can muster majorities and vote and have laws signed and people who are in the minority may uh, live to fight another day and, and turn that law over in the political forum. And that very few cases, very few issues will be completely removed from that political forum. Uh, and those are the cases where uh, the Constitution precludes legislative activity. But um, I very much appreciate your uh, expression of the uh, The role of a judge is one having a sense of uh, humility um, and modesty. Um, That's not to say, uh, from the way I look at it, or I'm sure the way you look at it, that uh, the job of a judge is unimportant. Uh, Being a judge is not easy all the time because you have to make tough decisions which may not be politically uh, popular, but that's what uh, goes along with the territory. But... um, I appreciate the, uh, the, the, the distinction that you've you've made and articulated for us here uh, in preserving the vast majority of the debates and issues that affect each of us in America and our families and our jobs as one where we can uh, govern ourselves through our elected representatives. And if we don't like the way that our elected officials are deciding things, we can throw the rascals out. Uh, but we can't do that. When it comes to a uh, an appointed lifetime tenured judge on the Supreme Court, and so uh, I appreciate very much your uh, the distinction uh, that you're drawing. With that, Mr. Chairman, I'll
0: surrender back two and a half minutes. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Senator Cornyn, uh, Senator Durbin.
1: Okay. Thank, thank you, you too. <laughs> thank you, Mr. Chairman, Judge Roberts, Mrs. Hello. Roberts, uh, family and friends. The end is near at least for this leg of the race. Welcome to Night Court. (laughs) Um, I was struck by a question and answer by Senator Grassley to you earlier today. The question was this, well, is there any room in constitutional interpretation for the judge's own values or beliefs? And your response? No, I don't think there is. Sometimes it's hard to give meaning to a constitutional term in a particular case, but you don't look to your own values and beliefs. You look outside yourself to other sources, Judge Roberts. I recently uh, finished a book about Justice Blackman and his service on the Supreme Court, and it was a fascinating book about his life on the court and his life in the federal judiciary. And it, it I found it interesting that near the end of his term on the court, a couple of cases occurred which really spoke to the heart of the man. One was Deshaney versus Winnebago County a poor little boy who had been beaten and abused, left retarded uh, by dereliction of duty by many of the county officials or state officials in Wisconsin, in an effort by his mother to hold them accountable. And they failed in the Supreme Court. But Justice Blackmun wrote a dissent which he prefaced poor Joshua. And he said at one point in response to someone who wrote him afterwards, about the court, sometimes we overlook the individual's concern. The fact that these are live human beings that are so deeply and terribly affected by our decisions. The other thing that occurred in Blackman's um, legal career, judicial career, was a real change in his view on the death penalty. And I think most of us are aware of the famous uh, statement which he made that From this day forward, I no longer shall tinker with the machinery of death. The last case that he voted with a majority on in favor of the death penalty was a case that you were involved in, the Herrera case. You were a deputy solicitor general at that time. It involved the case of an individual in Texas who had been accused of killing two police officers, who tried to reopen his case, offering evidence that his brother, who had since died, had actually been the killer. He turned to the federal court because he'd lost his time for reconsideration of the case by Texas law, and he argued a claim of actual innocence. Justice Blackman, in his statement at the end of this case, said Of one thing, however, I'm certain. Just as an execution without adequate safeguards is unacceptable, so too is an execution when the condemned prisoner can prove that he is innocent. The execution of a person who can show that he is innocent comes perilously close to simple murder. That was a dissent, or I should say a Blackman opinion in that case, that addressed your position that you had espoused as Deputy Solicitor General. Did you read that, Blackman? Uh, yes, Senator, I did. Were you struck by the language there? And, and the reason I asked that question is it's been 11 years since we've had a Supreme Court nominee before us. And a lot of things have happened in relation to the death penalty in America. We've looked closely at defendants who are young, those who are not mentally sufficient to stand trial. And we also now have the issue of DNA. In my state of Illinois, we found 12 people on death row who were innocent people. And the Republican governor pardoned them after the evidence came out. Tell me in that context, as you look at this and talk about this what appeared to be a very sterile and bloodless process, as you answered Senator Grassley. Tell me what goes through your mind and your heart when you think about addressing the death penalty, what happened in the Herrera case, and what we should look to from the court in the future when it comes to the Eighth Amendment and the death
3: penalty. Well, I think it's important, first of all, to appreciate that the issue in the Herrera case, I think, was misportrayed as an issue of actual innocence. The issue in the Herrera case is: At what point do uh, should new claims, in this case, the claim after his brother died? Well, guess what? I didn't do it. My brother did it, and he's dead now. Um, that is, to some extent, a claim of innocence, but it's the sort of claim that did not have, as the courts determined there, sufficient factual support to be taken seriously. That's quite different from a claim, for example, of the DNA evidence. Now, that's an issue that's working its way up, and I don't want to comment on it, other than to say that it seems to me that that type of claim, that somebody who just, did, just died was the actual uh, murderer, uh, is different from the scientific issue. They're just different cases, so I don't think that one should be taken as suggesting a, a view uh, on the other. Obviously, uh, any case involving the death penalty uh, is different. Uh, the court has recognized that. Um, the irrevocability uh, calls for the most careful scrutiny. Um, it is not an area uh, in which I've had to uh, consider cases as a judge uh, up to this point, um, um, and I certainly know the. Magnitude of the concern and the scrutiny that all of the justices bring to that question. It's just different than other cases. There's no doubt about that. Um, And the DNA evidence, obviously, I think is a very important and critical issue. No one wants an innocent person executed, period. Um, And the availability of that type uh, of evidence, that Opportunity in some cases, I think, is something that's a very significant development uh, in the law. Now, as I said, there are cases coming up in there, so I don't want to say anything further. I understand that. It is unfortunate that the decision was
1: made by the White House not to provide the memos and writings on the 16 cases when you served as Deputy Solicitor General. This was one of the cases, Herrera. And so... um, we might have learned a little more about the thinking at that time uh, that led to your conclusion. Let me ask you, I have been here most of the day, and you have been here all day, and I have noted how often you have distanced yourself from the memos written as a 26-year-old staff attorney. And I understand that. That is a long time ago. When we met in my office, that is, I think, exactly what you said when I referred to one of those memos. But, I'd like to ask you this, when you were serving the Reagan administration, the first Bush administration, was there ever a time when you stood up to your conservative colleagues and advocated a position that was more favorable to victims of di- discrimination or the disadvantaged?
3: There certainly were uh, internal disagreements and internal disputes about which approach to take. and an- Many cases I'd be on one side, in other cases I'd be on the other side. Certainly. Now, again, those are internal deliberations, um, and but uh, uh, there was debate and disagreement uh, on a regular basis. That's part of the, uh, the the nature of the of the job.
1: But there was one case, one case in particular that hasn't been mentioned today, that I'd like to ask you about, and that was the case involving Bob Jones University. That was one of the most troubling decisions of the Reagan Administration. It was a decision to argue before the Supreme Court that Bob Jones University should keep its tax-exempt status with the IRS, even though it had an official policy that banned interracial dating, denied admission to any applicants who engaged in interracial marriage, or were known to advocate interracial marriage or dating. When the Reagan administration took that position, it reversed the position of three previous administrations, including two Republicans, all of whom argued that Bob Jones was not eligible for this tax-exempt status. This sudden reversal by the Reagan Justice Department, which you were part of at the time, led to the unusual step of the Supreme Court appointing a special counsel, William Coleman, as a friend of the court, to argue in support of the IRS. In 1983, the Supreme Court ruled 8 to 1 against the Reagan administration and against Bob Jones University. Judge Roberts, there was a heated debate within the Justice Department about whether or not to defend Bob Jones University and its racist policies. More than 200 lawyers and employees of the Civil Rights Division, representing half of all the employees in that division, signed a letter of protest. William Bradford Reynolds, the head of the Civil Rights Division, strongly supported defending Bob Jones. Ted Olson, another person well-known in Washington, opposed this defense of Bob Jones. Which side were you on? What role did you play in the decision to defend Bob Jones University
3: policy? Um, Senator, I was ethically barred from taking a position on that case. I was just coming off of my clerkship on the Supreme Court, which ended in the summer of 1981. Supreme Court rules said that you could not participate in any way in a matter before the Supreme Court for a certain period of time, I, I think it was two years or, or whatever it was, and it was within that period. This involved an issue before the Supreme Court. so I was ethically barred from participating in that in any way. The memo that you wrote about the Bob Jones University position, the memo
1: that uh, December 5th, 1983, that summarized it, uh, leads one to believe in reading it that you were present during
3: deliberations on this policy is that true no senator I were I was not involved in the policy because of the bar on the participation
1: there appears to be another memo which I'm going to send to you dated September 29, 1982 with your handwriting in it uh, relative to this same issue and I just uh, I, I don't want to surprise you with it I'll send it to you and if Tomorrow we get a chance, we can revisit it. Let me ask you this When Senator Durbin, may we have
0: the numbers there? The staff needs those sure. in order to track the to. record. This
1: date is debated. dated pardon me, September 29, 1982. And it has a number on it? No number, but we'll give you a copy. Okay, we'll thank you. We'll share it with the judge. I want you to have... This is not a surprise. Sure. I just want you to take a look at it. We had a, a nominee for the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, Carolyn Cool. Do you know her personally? Yes served in the Justice Department with her? Right. When she came before this committee, Senator Leahy asked her several questions, and she said when she testified, quote, I regret having taken the position I did in support of the government's change of position on Bob Jones. The non-discrimination principle and the importance of enforcement of civil rights laws by the executive branch should have taken sway and should have been primary in making that decision. I appreciated her candor on that. What is your belief? Was the Reagan administration position on Bob Jones University the right
3: position to take? Oh, in, in, no, Senator. In retrospect, I think it's clear. The people who were involved in it, as you say themselves, think that it was an incorrect position. Um, I certainly don't disagree with that. Thank you. Let me move to another
0: topic. I didn't. I, I'm sorry, Senator. I didn't hear. I didn't hear the answer.
3: The answer is no. I don't think it was the correct position to take.
1: Thank you. Earlier, Senator Feinstein asked you about uh, the separation of church and state, and I would like to follow up on this if if I could. She asked whether you believe the separation of church and state was absolute, and I have your answer here relative to the two recent cases on the Ten Commandments. It appears now that there is a debate within the court as to whether or not they will stand behind the Lemon versus Kurtzman standards uh, under the Establishment Clause, the three part test, which I won't go through in detail. As Deputy Solicitor General of the Bush Administration, you co authored two legal briefs in which you urged the Supreme Court to overrule the Lemon standard Board of Education versus Mergens and Lee versus Weissman. You argued instead for what has been characterized in shorthand as the legal coercion test. So I'd like to ask you at this point in time what is your view on the establishment clause
3: and the lemon standard? Well, um, the lemon test um, uh, is a survivor. Uh, there's no other way to put it. Um, when we wrote the brief in Lee versus Weissman, we had a long footnote explaining that I think it was six different members of the current court had expressed their criticisms of the Lemon test. Um, They never got together at the same time, um, and the test has has endured. Um, uh, The approach that we were advocating in Lee versus Weissman did focus on the question of Coercion and uh, argued that in certain circumstances, uh, a recognition of uh, ceremonial religious practices, uh, an invocation at a graduation was the one at issue there, uh, were permissible. And again, that I think lost five to four. Uh, And the lemon test to this day is the test that the court applies. I think one of the justices recently explained, um, you know, it's not so much. Uh, how good the lemon test is, is that nobody can agree on an alternative to take its place, and there may be something to that. There are cases where the court doesn't apply the lemon test. It seems to follow a different approach. Um, the great benefit of the lemon test, the three-part test that everybody's familiar with, the course, is that it's very sensitive to factual nuances. Um, the disadvantage of the lemon test, I think, is that it's very sensitive to factual nuances, and you get a situation like with the Ten Commandments case, and again, I'm not commenting on correctness or not, but those are two decisions, and there's exactly one justice that thinks they're both right. Um, uh, nobody would suggest that this is an area of the law where the court's precedents are crystal clear. Uh, And I think there may be some inevitability to that. There is a tension of sorts between the Establishment Clause on the one hand and the Free Exercise Clause on the other, and the Court's cases in recent years have tried to consider when is an accommodation for religious belief, um, uh, when does that go too far and become an establishment of religion. The Court has a case on its docket uh, coming up. I think the animating principle of the framers that's reflected in both of the religion clauses is that no one should be denied the rights of full citizenship because of their religious belief or their lack of religious belief. That is the underlying principle. Uh, that is, I think, what the framers were trying to accomplish. Um, the jurisprudence, again, it's, it's, it's an area where the court uh, has adhered through thick and thin to the lemon test, uh, probably because they can't come up with anything better. But the results sometimes, I think, are a little difficult to comprehend. Now, of
1: course, Justice Rehnquist uh, had a different point of view, or at least he alluded to one when he appeared before this committee in 1986. Senator Simon asked him a question. He replied as follows. I have, in my opinions, read the Establishment Clause more narrowly than some of my colleagues, but I also think, Senator Simon, these are almost questions of degree and that there is not a tremendous amount of difference there as to the broad principles of the Establishment Clause are uncontroverted and those kinds of cases do not get up to us because they're pretty well settled. It is these kinds of frontier-type cases that come and reflect divisions among us. I certainly have read the Establishment Clause more narrowly than some of my colleagues. Do you feel that you are reading the Establishment Clause from a narrow point of view or from the traditional lemon point
3: of view? Well, I I don't think I've had uh, an Establishment Clause case. Um, The cases where... I have argued, uh, obviously, was representing the position of the administration, um, which was uh, that the, the lemon test was regarded by the administration as too manipulable, uh, not determinative, and in some senses inconsistent. So, those with, with, with the understanding of the framers. So, that was the position that we were advocating there. Um, I haven't expressed my personal views on the Establishment Clause uh, in, in any context. Well, let me read what you wrote in a memo on June 4, 1985, to Fred
1: Fielding. Again, this period of time when you were serving as a staff attorney uh, related to Wallace versus Jaffrey. Uh, and here's what you wrote in, ref- in reference to Establishment Clause and the limit test. Thus, as I see it, Rehnquist took a tenuous five person majority and tried to revolutionize Establishment Clause jurisprudence and end up losing the majority, which is not to say the effort was misguided. In the larger scheme of things, what is important is not whether this law is upheld or struck down, but what test is applied. I know you've said over and over again that you were just doing what you were paid to do, to tell the administration what they wanted to hear. Is that what happened here? I don't think I've said that. Well, uh, that's correct. I strike that from the record. Let me just say you were a staff attorney reflecting the views of the administration you worked for. Is that a correct characterization?
3: It's a correct uh, view. The, the views of the administration were quite clear with respect to uh, the moment of silence, which was the issue in Wallace against Jaffrey. It was the President's view that it was constitutional, through the Attorney General, that it was constitutional uh, to observe a moment of silence. Now, what the Court held in Wallace, of course, was that You couldn't look at just the moment of silence. There was a history there about uh, uh, school-led prayer and the substitute it and suddenly say, well, now it's a moment of silence. They didn't look at it in those terms, but looked at it in the long history. And the issue of whether a Real moment of silence without that kind of background in history, whether that would prevail or not, was one that the court didn't address in, in Wallace.
1: Let me just wrap this up by asking, and I think you've alluded to this, is it your belief that what we are trying to establish in the constitutional protection on the exercise of religion is not only to protect minorities, religious minorities, but
3: also non-believers? Yes, not, uh, the, the court's decisions in that area are quite clear. Uh, and I think the framers' intent was as well, and uh, that it was not their intent to uh, just have a protection for denominational discrimination. It was their intent to leave this as an area of privacy, a part of uh, conscience uh, from which the government would not intrude. Thank you. The next topic I'd like to talk about for a moment is
1: executive power, which has been addressed earlier. It's been a major... It has not been a major focus in previous hearings, but obviously is now that we are at war. You've been asked a lot of questions about it because I think there's so much at stake. We'll probably be involved in this war effort, as Senator Leahy said early this morning, for some time. Throughout American histories, uh, even some of our greatest presidents, including one from Illinois named Lincoln, uh, tried to restrict liberty in an effort to provide more safety and security in our nation. This administration is no exception. They've claimed the right to seize an American citizen in the United States and hold him indefinitely without charging him with a crime. They've claimed that the courts have no right to intervene. I think that threatens all of our freedoms. Just last week, Judge Ludig authored an opinion upholding the administration's position. And if you're confirmed, you may have the final word on this question. You and others have compared the role of a judge to an umpire, and I promised I wouldn't get into the baseball analogies. That's one thing I'll spare you from. But let me ask you this. When it comes to this use of executive power, you referred time and again to Justice Jackson in the Youngstown case. Here's what he said, a judge like an executive advisor may be surprised at the poverty of really useful and unambiguous authority applicable to concrete problems of executive powers as they actually present themselves. So if you're confirmed, you'll play a significant role in determining what limits, if any, the Constitution places on a president during times of war. That's why the American people have the right to know what you think about executive power. There was an exchange earlier today between you and Senator Kyle about a statement I made yesterday about whether, as a justice, you will expand freedom in America. And Justice Kyle seemed to, apart from Senator Kyle, (laughs) I don't know something (laughs) secret about that, but Senator Kyle uh, seemed to suggest it was a zero-sum approach that you couldn't enlarge the freedom of one person or group in America without taking away the freedom of another group. It's a curious point of view. It's the same point of view that Robert Bork had uh, that he tried to defend unsuccessfully before this committee many years ago. But my point to you is this. I'd like to ask you a question. What is it in your background or experience that can convince the members of this committee and the American people following us that you are willing to stand up to this president if he oversteps his authority in this time of war,
3: even if it's an unpopular thing to do? Well, Senator, I would just say that my demonstrated commitment to the rule of law, you can see that, I think, in my opinions over the past two years. You can see it in how I approach my job as a lawyer, arguing, and, and what types of arguments I make, uh, and how I make those arguments, and how faithful they are to the precedents. Um, and you can see it in my uh, history of public service. The idea that um, the rule of law, that's the only client I have as a judge. The Constitution uh, is the only interest I have as a judge. The notion that I would compromise my commitment to that principle that has been the lodestar of my professional life since I became a lawyer because of views toward a particular administration is one that I reject uh, entirely. Um, uh, That would be inconsistent with the judicial oath, and Justice Jackson is a perfect example of that. Uh, He is someone who was a strong advocate for executive power when he was FDR's attorney general, one of the strongest, Um, and yet he could issue a decision like the Youngstown decision, not only concluding that President Truman lacked the authority, even in times of war, to seize the the steel mills, but also setting forth the framework with the language of the sort that you just quoted, setting forth the framework about how to analyze these decisions in a way that is particularly sensitive to the role of Congress as well. That's the key feature of his framework, the examination of where Congress is on the spectrum in determining whether the executive has that authority. I hate to keep referring back to these ancient memos, but it's said that
1: if a hammer is the only tool you have, every problem looks like a nail. And in this case, this is the only tool we have to try to find out what's going on in your mind and in your heart. And so in a memo of 1983 to White House Counsel Fred Fielding, you wrote, the independent prerogative of the chief executive to determine that a given law is unconstitutional. You talked about the power of the executive to determine that a law is unconstitutional. We're going through this debate that Senator Leahy alluded to earlier relative to this torture memo and the idea that the administration would walk away from commitments that have been made under uh, Geneva Conventions and under the Convention on Torture and would instead establish a new standard. So my question to you is this. Would the anti-torture statute be unconstitutional simply because it conflicts with an order issued by
3: the President as Commander-in-Chief? No, uh, Senator, not simply because of the conflict, and I have to say I don't know, uh, that's one of the 80,000 memos I don't know uh, uh, about, uh, so I'd have to understand what the point was, what the issue was, and the language you read in in context before I could respond to that. Uh, But no, uh, uh, the President uh, has an obligation, Uh, he takes an oath, as we all do, to uphold the Constitution and to make a determination. And his determination that certain things are either constitutional or unconstitutional can, of course, in an appropriate case, be tested in court. And the ultimate arbiter of that under our system is the federal judiciary. Justice Jackson thought the bottom line on executive power was clear in Youngstown.
1: He said no penance would ever expiate the sin against free government upholding a president can escape control of executive powers by law through assuming his military role. I assume you agree with that statement by Justice Jackson.
3: Yes, uh, I do. the The it it simply reflects the basic principle that uh, no no man is above the law, uh, not the president and not the Congress, and that's why the courts have the obligation and have had since Marbury versus Madison to say what the law is. And if that means that Congress has acted unconstitutionally, they strike down the law. And if it means that the executive has acted unconstitutionally, they have the obligation to uh, block the executive action. We can imagine a hypothetical statute that would clearly intrude on a president's power
1: as commander-in-chief, ordering the movement of troops and that sort of thing. On the other hand, the anti-torture statute is clearly within the area, I believe, where Congress can legislate. As you noted this morning, Article I, Section 8 of the Constitution enumerates Congress's powers, speaking clearly that this, it says the Congress shall have the power to make rules for the government and regulation of the land and naval sources. So I I hope, I think we've exhausted this topic, and I think we're in common feeling and agreement about it. I hope we are at least close. Let me ask you one last question In a few minutes remaining here. I've listened uh, to some of the questions asked about gender and sex discrimination. They've come up repeatedly during the course of this. And as you look at the standards that are applied uh, to equal protection for a variety of different circumstances, there are different standards. I think you started to explain them at one point today. Maybe you got through the explanation. I'm not sure. But under strict scrutiny, the suspect classifications include race and national origin, religion, alienage, and the like. Then there is a Of course, the other standard of of what is um, characterized as middle-tier scrutiny, which includes quasi-suspect classifications of gender and illegitimacy. As you look back at the sweep of history that created these different standards, can you rationalize the difference between discrimination based on race and based on gender
3: well, uh, I can tell you what the court has done. There are justices who aren't comfortable with the different tiers. They say there's one equal protection clause, and, and uh, but the different tiers are fairly well established as an approach to um, uh, the different uh, areas in, discrimina- in discrimination. And the rationale for it is that there are areas in which uh, you think it is almost never the case that distinctions that are drawn can be legitimate. Uh, distinctions based on race or ethnicity, and so they're subject to the most heightened scrutiny. Uh, The rational relation test, which applies across the board to any type of law, I think there it's quite often the case that uh, distinctions drawn on whatever basis Congress wants uh, uh, are likely to reflect the different sorts of policy judgments. Gender issues are in the middle tier because the court thinks That there are situations where distinctions can be justified, uh, and there are other situations, but it's more than just the rational relation, but not as suspect as the most heightened level, because there may be other justifications. Uh, Cases throughout the court's history where they have upheld uh, uh, distinctions under that analysis, like the uh, uh, all male draft, for example, uh, that was upheld. Now, if you had applied strict scrutiny to that type of classification, perhaps the result would have been different um, uh, and the all-male draft would have been struck down. It reflects the court's determination that these are not sort of almost always inherently irrational and discrimination rather than legitimate governmental distinctions um, but that it's entitled to a heightened degree of scrutiny beyond the rational relation test. Uh, Justice Ginsburg, I think, in her opinion, um, in the VMI case, it said that the intermediate scrutiny had to be applied with, uh, I forget the exact phrase, exacting rigor or something along those lines uh, to indicate that it is well beyond the rational relation test, but it's not as inherently suspect as racial classifications. Judge Roberts, thank you today for your patience uh, with the committee and your, you, and your responses to my
1: questions. I think we all understand the gravity of this hearing, as you do, and uh, we thank you very much for bringing your family and friends to be with you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you, Senator
0: Durbin, and uh, thank you all for sitting through a very long proceeding today. We're in our 11th hour. Thank you, Judge Roberts. Uh, thank you, Senator Leahy. Yeah. Here all day. And thank uh, all my colleagues. Uh, Uh, most of whom have been here uh, practically uh, all day. Senators have other responsibilities, and when we set the time and stick to it, they know when to come in to uh, find the time. There has been, I think, a spirit of goodwill generally, dignified uh, generally, contentious at times, but uh, I think think productive. We will begin tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock, 9 a.m. instead of 9.30. Begin at 9 a.m., and we will start with the questioning. 30 minutes to Senator Brownback. That concludes our day's session.
3: Audible thanks you for listening to the Senate Judiciary Committee's
1: hearings on the nomination of Judge John Roberts to be Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Please visit audible.com for the best downloadable audiobooks, as well as subscriptions and
3: podcasts of top audio programs, including Fresh Air, Car Talk, Scientific American, Harvard Business Review, and Charlie Rose.